The first uh, murder case that Papa tried was his worst. Now, it was said when I came out into Westlake Hills, and that was the area in which these people lived, the Youngs lived. It was said that about 1930, somewhere along in there, when I went out there, that there had not been a natural death among the male members of the Young family for uh, three generations. Now, they were either still living or they had died violent deaths. And I would recite the histories of several of these in this, in this tape because uh, we represented them rather constantly. But I do remember that uh, there was an old Oliver Young, old man Oliver Young, was killed upon the, uh, Herbert Allen's place on the river, which was on the sandbar, and that's where the Austin Lake Estates are now located. And Al Young was killed by Mr. Epps, who lived out in South Austin. Mr. Epps' son named Raymond was just a little older than me and a little younger than Pope, and went to school in Fulmore School with us. So I'm sure that when Mr. Epps killed Mr. Young, that either, uh, I don't remember anything about the trial, but I'm sure that my father probably represented Mr. Epps. Then, uh, there were a number of the Youngs, and, and I'll go into those later on, but uh, this fellow was named Jim Young, and uh, he was a, a cousin or a sister of Lade Young, who later uh, dug post holes and cut cedar off the first place I bought in Westlake Hill. But poor Jim, uh, it was about, like I said, between, uh, before 1910, I'm sure, and he had his family. Uh, consisted of his wife and some children of some sort, they, and it might not have been his own children. They might have been somebody, some of his neighbor's children who uh, came from that West D.K. Road area. And they went up to Williamson County and found themselves in the little, right outside the little town of Florence to pick cotton one fall. And uh, the, while they were there, Jim lived in a tent out on the farm where he was picking cotton, uh, and uh, he took a log chain, or some kind of a chain, and he beat one of the little girls who was in his party to death. And that is the subject of this first homicide that I'm going to talk about, and I believe I can, can uh, without much uh, raping of the situation, call it a murder. I believe it was the most brutal murder that I have ever heard of, and uh, my father, uh, uh, he tackled it because he needed the business. The young family hired him to go to Georgetown and represent uh, Jim, and I won't call him poor Jim, I've already done that once. But my, my information from this case comes from my father telling me directly what happened as a defense attorney. Another one of my dear friends in later life named Dewitt Bomer. He was one of the most famous lawyers in Temple, and his son was elected to, uh, Jim Bomer was elected uh, president of the Texas Bar Association about three or four years ago. Jim's younger than me, and his, his uh, daddy was a little old boy about 13 or 14 years old in, in uh, Florence, Texas. That's where his home was at the time that Jim killed this little girl. And Mr. DeWitt Bomer, tell, he told me his story too because I've tried several cases with him and one of them will come out a little later. It'll be the Cal Yarbrough case that's tried in Austin and I helped Mr. Bomer try it. But Mr. Bomer at that time was just a little teenage boy and living in Florence. Well, uh, Jim killed this little girl and of course, he knew he had done wrong. He had that much sense, so he took out and he had in the brush, and the posse got in after him. Of course, after they brought the little girl's body into the, the uh, furniture store there in, in Florence, the furniture store in those back in those days also acted more or less as the morgue, and the undertaker and they all uh, had the material to build coffins with, so they also acted as the morgue and as the undertaker. 
And so uh, they brought this little girl's body in, the officer did, and put it in this furniture store in the back room there. And uh, while they, well, all the rest of the men went out to look for, for Jim Young, and of course all the women locked their doors and stayed home. Well, Mr. Bormer said that he was a close personal friend of the son of the man who owned the furniture store, and, and incidentally was the undertaker. And that, of course, the, uh, they all uh, heard of this terrific murder, terrible murder. And so he t told his little friend, he said, I would like to go in and look at the, the, the corpse because I'm going to be a lawyer, a good lawyer someday, and it, it is predicted to prove true. But anyway, D. Wett said that that night while uh, the little girl was laid out in the morgue, he slipped in with his little friend and he got to see the body. And he said that there wasn't a place on her body as big as your hand that wasn't bruised from this, uh, this awful beating that the little girl had gotten before she died. Well, to, to make a uh, which I'm not going to do. I'm not going to make a, a, a long story short. I'm going to tell the details of this thing. But DeWitt said that, uh, of course, uh, uh, in the meantime, the man was indicted in Georgetown, which was the county seat of, uh, of Williamson County. And the uh, young family came and hired Papa to represent them, being a young lawyer. Well, uh, he did. He went up to Georgetown, and then this is what Papa tells me. He said that, that they came from the trial for the trial of Jim, uh, Jim Young, and uh, the little old jail was about a block and a half north of the courthouse at that time in Georgetown, and it still is. I presume unless they built a new jail. But when I practiced law several years ago, the jail was in the same place, right on the banks of the San Gabriel River. But they put Jim in the jail, and of course the sheriff watched him day and night uh, around the clock because it wasn't the kind of a case that would uh, uh, induce a man to stay in jail if he didn't have to because he knew what was going to face him. And that was back in the days of public hangings. And incidentally, this was the last public hanging in Texas. Now, I've told you what the verdict was, now I'm going to tell you how it was arrived at. But uh, Papa had to go from Austin to Georgetown, and he stayed in the hotel, because in those days you had to go by horse and buggy. So Papa stayed in the hotel up there during this trial. And it was such a, had so much publicity, even in those days, everyone in two or three counties heard of it. And, and the courtroom was filled with people every day of the trial. And uh, uh, Papa had no defense, of course. He just hoped that they wouldn't be able to prove too much on, on, on Jim, but they didn't have to. He made a confession, of course, in the little girl's body, and, and the other witnesses there had to testify against him. But Papa was all alone with poor old Jim, so to speak. And Papa said that each day that the sheriff would uh, bring Jim from the jail off up to the courthouse, manacles from hand and foot. He had uh, chains on his legs and on his arms and they'd bring him into the courtroom and they never took the chain off of him. They just left him bound chain because it was dangerous to do so. And so uh, uh, they went along for two or three days after they got to jury and, and uh, Papa said one day at noon that, that uh, they made a practice of taking Jim back down to the, to the jail to feed him whatever he got to eat. But the people would just line the, the, the courthouse uh, walk to and Jim would have to walk between them to get out to, to, the, to, the, to the jail. And he came along one day at noon, and Papa was right along with the sheriff and him, and said that Jim stopped uh, this crowd of gawkers at him and told the sheriff, he said, Sheriff, if you'll give me a pot of piss and a syringe, I'll run every son of a bitch out of town. And that didn't pretend to endure him with those people, but uh, he made his redundant remark. Well, the trial went on. And uh, Jim uh, got it to the jury, and I don't know how fast it took him to condemn him to, to death. Uh, they state brought in a verdict of guilty and recommended the death penalty, and of course the judge then assessed the death penalty. And so uh, 
uh, it was set for a certain day, uh, not too far away, and they were going to hold it, hold, they were going to build a scaffold out on the prairie just south of Southwestern University, where Southwestern University of Nam was then. And uh, they, uh, uh, the day was set, and it was uh, going to be the last public hanging in Texas. Now I'll pick up Mr. Bomer's side of the story. D. Red said that uh, being a, a prospective young lawyer, and, and that was his ambition, that he decided that since he had seen the, the little girl's body, that he was going to see this case from one end to the other. So all during the trial, he and his little boyfriend, who was the undertaker's son, they had little ponies, and they would get on their ponies early in the morning before daylight and ride to Georgetown, and they would get a front seat on the, in the courtroom, and they would hear all the evidence, and they heard every bit of it. And they carried that case that up, to the, up to the verdict. Then, I have to go back and intercede here and say that I'm sure that my father did make an appeal in this case, because that was a necessary ingredient of representing a man that went to the chair in those days, as it is now. And I'm sure that he did make the appeal, and perhaps that put the uh, hanging day off a little longer than it would have otherwise. But after that was over, I think uh, he cut out in the present-day parlance, and as he had done Jim about all the good he could do him, and he, I know that he wasn't invited to sit on the on the scaffold at the time of, of, of Jim's hanging. However, uh, the rest of the story from that on comes up from Mr. Bowman. So Mr. Bowman said he and his little boyfriend, they watched real closely for the time that they, they were going to have a hanging. And uh, on the day of the hanging, he and his boyfriend got up real early in the morning, got on their ponies, and they took out from Florence to go to, to Georgetown to see this hanging. Said he got down there about 8 o'clock in the morning, and they uh, they both got out on the south uh, of Southwestern University on the prairie there, and the, the scaffold had been built and, and uh, out in the open there, and they had a, a off about 40 yards or, or so from the scaffold all the way around it. There was a post put up, cedar post or some kind of a piggies, and they had one barbed wire strung around about... Uh, three feet high, or maybe four feet high, around these posts to keep the crowd back from the scaffold when, uh, because they anticipated quite a crowd. Well, Dewitt said that uh, he and his boyfriend had brought their lunch, so they tatted their ponies off out about three or four hundred yards in a tree somewhere from the scaffold, and, and they went down and sat down on the ground right under this wire to wait for time to pass, because they're going to have a hanging at what they call high noon. So they sat there and sat about, oh, 10 or 11 o'clock, a little before that maybe, that people started to gather. They'd come in hacks and buggies and bicycles, and uh, of course they didn't have automobiles in those days, but they came as far as from way from Austin and Belton. But he said the prayer was literally filled with people to come to see old Jim Hunt. And said by uh, all about uh, 12 o'clock, that's when they're going to have a hanging, about 15 minutes before that, well, that sheriff shows up with four or five of his deputies, and they had old Jim all manacled, and they uh, stopped their hack out of uh, the edge of the crowd and insisted on the crowd opening up and let them come walking by and said they walked right by where he was sitting. Uh, he, by that time, he had gotten up and was leaning against this wire so that no one could, could get the front seat on him. And he said he and the other little boy were just about big enough to where the wire reached him about chest high, just a little below the shoulders, and said that they were standing up and the sheriff came by and they all bent down under the wire that the posse did, so to speak, and and took Jim on down to the scaffold, which was uh, several yards away. And I uh, said they climbed up on the <coughs> scaffold, and, and uh, they went through some sort of formality up there, putting a hood on Jim's uh, head. They may not have done that. They may not. They may have just hung the rope over his neck. But while that is going on, 
Mr. Bowman said that the crowd got rather unruly. They got excited and they were pushing and shuffling around to get a, a good view, you know, as people do at even football games nowadays. And he said, during that scuffle, and somebody pushed him up against this wire. And his, uh, one of the barbs stuck him in the chest. It was barbed wire, and he said he stuck down to where it wouldn't hurt him too bad. And when he did, the man or woman that pushed him, uh, pushed him on under the wire. And said when he got on the wire, everybody all the way around their circle, that is a signal that, that uh, the crowd had gotten out of hand. And so they all just broke the wire down and started toward the scaffold and running like a mob. And so he said he had to just run like the devil to keep them getting trampled down by these people who wanted to get in the front seat, get up as close as they could get to it. And uh, the barricade is down, gone. And so he and the other little boy run as hard as they could. And he said all the time he's running, he's trying to watch and see what's going on on the scaffold because after having gone through all the trouble he had to watch that crawl and come down to that hanging and if he get down there and then not see it he just wasted all his time so he thought so he said he didn't stumble but he got down there and he and he jumped up on the two before uh, uh, bottoms uh, or the framework of the scaffold and uh, in order to keep him getting trapped on by these people behind him and said when he got up there he was uh, the scaffold was so high that he couldn't look over the floor of it. He was down below the floor, and all he could do was to look at the bottom, but he could see where the trap door was, and he, he figured that's all he's going to get to see uh, from the position he's in, and so he said he glued his eyes to that bottom of that trap door. And he said, sure enough, the sheriff had gotten a little disturbed about this crowd coming in on him, and he figured if he didn't spring the trap door pretty quick, he, somebody might take Jim away from him. So he pulled the lever, and... And old Jim's body come a plunging down through the trap door, and when he hit the bottom of the rope, D. Wood said, and of course he, he had a reaction, and he, he jolted, and his feet popped up and nearly hit the floor of the of the, the bottom of the, of the scaffold, and said when he did, his, his feet come right by about six or eight inches from his, from D. Wood's nose, and, and, uh, and then settled back down at the end of the rope. Well, D. Wood said that he had to duck to, really, he thought he had to duck to keep him kicked in the face by old Jim, but anyway, he said he saw that hanging. And from what I have said and what Eva told me, I believe he did see that hanging. Uh, as an aftermath of this whole thing, last year we had uh, a reunion of all the old people and that have known anything about Eanes School since uh, the beginning of time, by, by 1900 anyhow. And uh, uh, the Eanes District out there is where the Youngs were raised and where the Young Cemetery is. It's on Highway... Uh, the outer loop out there just north of, of uh, Barton Creek and on the east side of the outer loop. That's where the Young Cemetery is. And so there was a Mrs. Mowinkle who had, was going to school, at Ain School about 1903 and four. And she had married one of the uh, Johnson boys out there. Anyway, she was uh, cognizant of the situation. And she said, I asked her if she was there when Jim Young, or she knew the Youngs, and at this reunion. And she told me that, yes, she did know Jim Young. And she remembers very well that uh, when he was hung in Georgetown, and that the people up there, of course, were interested in, in Jim's uh, in the case because they, they it was one of their neighbors, and said that uh, when the, the family, the young family, brought Jim's body back from Georgetown from the hanging, that they didn't try to go across the Congress Avenue bridge where it was, but they forded the river between uh, Barton Creek and and uh, and, and uh, the Congress Avenue bridge, and they had a wagon, had Jim's body wrapped up in a in a tarp of some kind, in a, in a wagon, and the people from, from uh, this in school area went down there to, to, to see Jim come in. and said she was there when the young family brought uh, Jim's body in his, in his wagon across the river and took him on out to this old young cemetery to be buried.